This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is Mark 10, 45. Keep that in mind today. Guys, as always, we're so thankful that you're here and we're very, very thankful to our donors. If you're not familiar with this, if you're new to the show, we are basically kept completely afloat by our donors. So if you are a donor to us, if you go to our donation website, whether that's a one-time donation or a monthly donation, you guys are why we can pull off things like this podcast. You guys are why we can do some of the new things that we're going to be doing. I know I keep teasing this new program, but guys that are looking to really, really stay step up spiritually, mentally, and physically guys with men's groups, you know, fathers with sons, those types of things. We got a lot of stuff that we're hoping to announce here in the next couple of months. It's because of you guys. And also we do like to do unique things for you guys to give you a chance to help us raise some money for operations. And so if you know anything about Undaunted Life, you know, we like sharp pointy things like knives, right? So we love Stevenson knives, the custom knives that they make. There's some other brands that we really like and we really support, but our friends over at Montana Knife Company, okay? They have really hooked us up. Okay, so if you know anything about Montana Knife Company, you know that their brand has absolutely exploded over the last couple of years, and it's almost impossible to get your hands on one of their limited edition knives before they're completely sold out. So they do drops every, I think, Thursday or Friday, and I mean, they sell out in three or four minutes, no matter what it is, whether it's a hunting knife or a culinary set or whatever. But Undaunted Life, a man's podcast alum, Josh Smith, the guy who founded Montana Knife Company, him and his team wanted to help Undaunted Life raise some money for our 2024 operations. So we are raffling off. An amazing knife and two Montana Knife Company branded Bill's hats, which will go to one lucky donor. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Josh at Montana Knife Company. So he wanted to create whenever he was first getting into creating knives, he wanted to build the ultimate kind of do it all knife. So he wanted it to be, you know, light and small enough to where you could pack it in for a hunt. It wanted to be durable enough to where if you're like field dressing a moose or an elk or something like that, you could take it with you. Uh, you, you could gut an animal, you can cape an animal, you can skin an animal, you can debone an animal and do it all with one knife as opposed to carrying multiple knives. And that's how he created this knife right here, which is the Blackfoot. Okay, so this is the very, very first knife that was created by Montana Knife Company and Josh Smith, this knife right here. And so this remains his go-to blade whenever he goes out on big hunts. So this is the Blackfoot 2.0 Magna Cut Edition. So it's a three and a half inch blade length. It's a G10 bulletproof handle. This entire thing is 100% made in America, made in Frenchtown, Montana. It's hand finished by Josh Smith, who is a master bladesmith. He actually was the, uh, the youngest master bladesmith ever when he got his master bladesmith designation. This is Magna Cut stainless steel. Uh, it's got this Montana Knife Company exclusive Kydex locking sheath. Uh, it's meant for external carry for uh, easy accessibility, but also there's a retention screw on this for a custom lock. And then so and then so that's the knife. Okay, so let me put the knife away without cutting myself. Okay, boom. That's that. And then we've got these two hats right here. So if you go to their website, you see they got a lot of awesome hats. So these are a couple of their different trucker hat things and their branded bills. So you guys know those are like the, the best hats in the world. That's why we make our hats with branded bills. So here's the skinny on the raffle. Okay. So if you're listening to this right now, this applies to you. So any person that donates $25 through our donation website, which is in the show notes between now and March 13th, that's March 13th, 2024, between now, between you listening to this and March 13th, and you put the word knife in the comments section, 
Okay, that's very important. Put knife in the comments section on the donation. This will automatically get your name entered into the randomized drawing for the knife, which we will do. Okay, so every $25 that you donate, we've done a lot of these before, so you guys get the point, but every $25 that you donate equals one spot in the raffle. Okay, so if you donate 100 bucks, your name goes in the randomizer four times. If you donate 1000 bucks, your name goes in the randomizer 40 times, so on and so forth. So, and also just as a thank you to our current monthly donors, regardless of how long or how much you've been donating, we will be putting your name into the randomizer twice just as a thank you for being a current monthly donor. So current donors, you can also make additional donations to have your name in the raffle more. Obviously, we're okay with that. And then we will take a video of us doing the randomizer and we'll post that on Instagram and announce the winner on our show on March the 14th. So on Thursday, March the 14th, be looking out for the winner. And also we'll reach out to the winner individually. And as a bonus here, a portion of the proceeds will go to support the local pregnancy resource center here in my town. That's the Hope Pregnancy Center. Uh, the very first knife giveaway we did from Stevenson Knives, which we're so thankful for those guys and everything they've done for us, uh, we did part of the the proceeds went to the Hope Pregnancy Center, and it was a, a sizable donation. I think it was like 2400 bucks uh, that we were able to donate to them, and that goes to pay for women to get ultrasounds where they can see their baby, and the odds of them keeping their baby if they see the ultrasound goes up exponentially, and so we want to do everything we can to support life and we will do it right here in our community so that is it the blackfoot 2.0 you can check out in the show notes how to get to our donation page or just go to undaunted.life backslash donate so today's episode gotta take a deep breath here because this could have been called the ever-expanding crazy episode because this is what happens when i get a backlog on my notes on my phone Okay, so we've had a lot of great interviews coming up, and then I'm going to be out of town here uh, pretty soon, and so I'm going to be not in studio, and so I've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and so what that creates is a backlog with quick hitters. So there's a lot of things that I've wanted to talk about, and even as I prepared this episode last week, there were more things that came up, and so I had to add a lot to it. So this might be a record. This might be a record-long solo episode. I'm going to say that from the very beginning, because I just intended to do quick hitters. And then the he gets us Super Bowl ad happened. And so it's like, I'm gonna have to give that a little bit more time. But here's the quick hitters that we're going to hit today. Okay. A pro-Palestine jihadist attempting a mass shooting at Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church. Pastor Alistair Begg saying that Christians should attend gay weddings. Co-president Biden, co, uh, Co-president Biden conducting a disastrous news conference after his DOG, DOJ let him off the hook for mishandling classified documents. Goodness gracious, Kyle, let's go. The possibility of former First Lady Michelle Obama entering the race for president. Dr. Fauci finally admitting that the six feet apart COVID rule wasn't based in science nor reality. Ron DeSantis suspending his campaign for president. A Tennessee jury convicting six pro-life activists of violating the FACE Act. A 50-year-old Canadian teacher competing against teenage girls in swimming competitions and changing in the same locker rooms. The mother of a school shooter being convicted of manslaughter. The man that beheaded a satanic idol statue at Iowa State Capitol building... Uh, being charged with a hate crime, two Navy SEALs dying during a mission off the coast of Somalia, three U.S. troops being killed in a drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan, Ohio lawmakers overriding the veto of Governor Mike DeWine and allowing for the ban of so-called sex change surgeries for minors, cases of teens suffering from cannabis-induced psychosis going through the roof, the state of Oregon reversing their liberal drug law due to a stark increase in overdoses, Christian rapper Lecrae calling for reparations, Elon Musk announcing the first implantation of a Neuralink chip into a human brain, the state of Alabama executing death row inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith by nitrogen hypoxia, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel stepping down, and then by far my favorite story of the year, 
So I'm not going to say exactly what it is. I'll, I'll kind of leave it up to suspense because as you can tell, we're going to go through a lot of stuff today. This is going to be well over an hour long episode. It's going to be well worth your time though. But if you stick around to the end, you will get my favorite news story of 2022 so far. So before we get going, big drink of water. Let's get after it. We need to talk about the He Gets Us Super Bowl ad. Okay. So in terms of He Gets Us, as I told you, I have a quick hitters notes on my phone section and I've got stuff that I'll just take notes on. Now there's things that I know that I'm going to need to address soon because the news cycle is going to move on. And then I've got a list of things that it's like, okay, if I'm running out of things to talk about, or if there's something that, you know, I kind of have a little bit of space, I can give attention to it. So the He Gets Us organization was on that list, but it was kind of on the bottom of the list. Like, Hey, you know, at some point I'm going to have to kind of give some attention to this organization, figure out what they're about, figure out what their campaigns are about and all those types of things, because I, I hadn't given them a lot of attention, but I had heard some negative grumblings about it, but I didn't really know what was going on. But then I'm at a Super Bowl party this weekend with some good buddies and uh, we're all sitting around watching the games. Our kids are around. And then this ad pops up for he gets us. And after the ad was done. I'm sitting there with everybody. All these people are in my Sunday school class. So it's husbands and wives and everybody kind of had the same reaction, which was like, what in the world was that? Like, what, what, what was the point of that? That was weird. And, and again, I'm, I'm a fairly extreme guy. I have some extreme opinions, but these are some very conservative, very like kind of chill people. And they're just like, that was really strange. I don't think I like that. Okay. Now in terms of this ad, I'm going to break down this ad. But I, I, will, I like to advocate for people being able to speak for themselves but, and also to take people at their word, right? So I've, as I've talked about before, maybe we should listen to these modern-day jihadists whenever they try to kill a bunch of people that, no, we're not killing you because of your foreign policy of your nation. We're killing you because you're an apostate or, or you're the infidel and we, we just want to kill you because we hate you kind of a thing. So what I'm going to do in this podcast episode, at least here at the beginning on this, is I'm going to describe the ad. Okay, so it's in the show notes. I can't put it here on YouTube. I don't think I have access to it or, or permission to do that. And again, it's just images anyway, so you're going to need to go look at it for yourself. Uh, so you can go and check that out if you're one of the 14 people in the world that hasn't seen it yet. And then I'm going to actually read an article that's directly from the hegetsus.com website, which is explaining the heart behind this ad. And I'm just going to read that article in its entirety. It, it's a short one. And then I'll give you a breakdown and some thoughts to ponder. But I will tell you this from the beginning. If you absolutely hate he gets us and everything about this organization and you hate the ad please stick with me until the end until the end of my summary and my thoughts here and if you love he gets us if you think it's the greatest thing ever and like this is just a way to get jesus's name out there and all oh, everything's flower and rainbows whatever please stick with me to the end okay please please stick with me to the end so let's talk about the ad so again, go watch the ad if you haven't seen it before, but it's a bunch of pictures taken by a photographer named Julia Fullerton uh, Batten, okay? And so uh, these look like AI images, I'm not exactly sure, but this is, you know, an artistic rendering of different things. And it's depicting a bunch of scenes where someone is washing someone else's feet and it's set to music, okay? So I'm going to do my best to be absolutely fair and just describe to you what I'm seeing in the pictures without commentary, okay? So let's go through the different pictures. These are the pictures in order. There's a young man with bleached hair and tattoos washing the feet of a man that looks to be his grandfather or perhaps his father. There's a Hispanic cop washing the feet of what looks like a black BLM activist or a black criminal, something like that, in a dark alley. 
There's a preppy looking girl washing the feet of a punk kind of goth looking girl in a high school hallway. There's an old white man washing the feet of an old American Indian man. There's an older woman washing the feet of a younger woman outside of a building that says family planning clinic on it on the side of it. And so uh, we also see some peaceful pro-life protesters in the background. I guess we can assume that this young lady has just killed her baby via, via abortion. We see an alcoholic woman having her feet washed by presumably her daughter. We have a white male oil field worker washing the feet of an Asian anti-oil activist. We see a white suburban woman washing the feet of a Hispanic immigrant that's holding a baby. We see a white suburban woman washing the feet of a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. We see a young black woman washing the feet of a young brown woman, and they seem to be in the middle of a political protest between conservatives and progressives. We see an old white man and an old black man sitting on a porch, looks to be out in the country somewhere, with their feet in the bucket of water together. We see an old white Catholic priest washing the feet of a gay black man. So that's the final image, and then we see words pop up in the ad for the first time, and they read, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us, all of us. Jesus. He gets us.com backslash love your neighbor. Okay. So that's the ad. You've obviously seen the ad, but now I want to go to the article on their website entitled what foot washing or what is foot washing and what does it symbolize? So I'm reading this directly from their website. I'm reading it. It's in its entirety. You can check it out in the show notes for yourself. Okay. And that link also has a link to the video. All of the images in the spot were shot by intentional fine art photographer Julia Fullerton Batten. As we thought about what to do for this year's commercial, we reflected on our 2023 TV spot, Love Your Enemies. That commercial was all about hate and division. Ultimately, it was about pride. Pride says, I'm right and you're wrong. Every image depicted people in a state of prideful contention, whether it be politicians yelling in a debate or parents fighting at a youth football game. So we thought that maybe this year we should focus on the thematic inverse of last year's commercial one built on the premise of love and unity. And with an upcoming election year that will be filled with division and derision, we decided to focus on one of the most important directives given by Jesus, love your neighbor. As we explored creative ideas, we recalled the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and realized this was the perfect example of how we should treat one another, even those people with whom we don't see eye to eye. Jesus had washed Peter's feet, a loyal friend who would publicly deny that he knew Jesus later that very night. And even more astoundingly, Jesus washed Judas Iscariot's feet, the one who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. So why did Jesus wash the feet of both friends and foes? What was he teaching them then and us today? In ancient times, many travelers traveled by foot in sandals or even barefoot. The dusty roads and rocky trails left their feet coated with grime or caked with mud. Upon arrival at their destination, a host would often bring a basin of water and wash the weary traveler's feet. It was a gesture of welcome and kindness, not to mention a practical means to keep dirt out of the home. And in the homes of the wealthy or powerful, it was most likely done by a servant, a slave, or the wife of the host. But Jesus took it one step further. During his last meal with his closest followers, the twelve disciples, Jesus retrieved a bowl, filled it with water, and began washing their feet with a rag. But this wasn't a traditional cleaning after a road trip. Jesus was using foot washing to emphasize a larger point, a symbol for all of his followers to see how they should treat one another. The disciples considered Jesus not to be their master or religious leader, but also most even revered him as the promised Messiah, a long-awaited king who would, according to their prophecy, deliver Israel from its oppressors. In this time period, the Romans. When Jesus offered to wash his disciples' feet, it was so antithetical to their way of thinking that some initially declined his offer. But Jesus explained, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. John thirteen fourteen. Not only was Jesus teaching them that the true leader should be willing to humble himself or herself to serve all, but also that they should be willing to wash one another's feet. 
Foot washing required humility on the part of both parties, the one willing to wash another's feet and also the one willing to have their feet washed. It was an act of mutual mutual admiration. Jesus was shedding any notion of rank or caste among his disciples. Foot washing requires one to lower themselves, even kneel before another person. While the posture seems subservient, subservient at first, it truly represents an act of kindness and generosity that makes the actions of the foot washer noble. And that always, uh, that was always the way of Jesus. Put others first and himself last. He had previously taught, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's Matthew twenty three eleven through 12. He was now putting that very teaching into practice. It was these words and actions of Jesus that inspired us. We began to imagine a world where ideological others were willing to set their differences aside and wash another's, one another's feet. How would that look? How would our contentious world change if we wash one another's feet? Not literally, but figuratively. Figurative foot washing can be as simple as giving a compliment to a coworker or paying for a stranger's lunch. It can also be as difficult as not responding to someone who's criticizing you or reaching out to an estranged family member. Acts of kindness done out of humility and respect for uh, one another could be considered an equivalent of foot washing. Honestly, images of people washing each other's feet look a little strange and disconcerting because it's not part of our modern day customs. But there's also something beautiful and profound in each image. Our hope is that our latest commercial will stimulate both societal discussion and individual self-reflection about who is my neighbor and how each of us can love our neighbor even as we have differences to serve one another with more kindness and respect. Okay? So, that's their ad, and that's their description of why they put that ad out. Okay? So again, didn't try to editorialize or anything as I was doing that, but there it is. Now, I would like to do a breakdown of their About Us page. But we've got so much to talk about today, and again, I have to be very careful with how much I use my voice. I have some serious problems with their About Us page, but there's a gal named Natasha Crane. She did a pretty good job of breaking that down in a blog she wrote recently, uh, which also links to an older blog where she kind of goes through some of that. And so I'm just going to put that in the show notes so that you guys can look at that, and I'm going to focus mainly on the ad. So here are my problems with this ad in particular. I have three main problems. The first is that it plays into a bunch of this liberal progressive tropes, a bunch of these tropes about evil, bigoted, racist, conservative white people, Uh, but it doesn't do anything in the opposite way. So this ad plays into the oppressor versus oppressed narrative like to a T, and that is based on intersectionality, which comes from cultural Marxism, right? So let's start with one of the low key ones. There's a preppy looking girl washing the feet of a punk rock looking girl in a high school hallway. Why not the punk girl washing the feet of the preppy girl? Obviously, the message is that, oh, the preppy girl is the one that's wrong. Like, she's the one in the position of power, not the punk rock girl, right? Even though the punk rock girl has the same feelings of negativity towards the preppy girl, right? So that's a low-key one. But then we see an old white man washing the feet of an old American Indian man. Why not the Indian washing the feet of the white man? Is the implication that somehow what was done to this man's ancestors doesn't compare to what was done in the opposite way to the white man's ancestors. And then there's an old, this is the, the last image, this is the one that's getting the most, uh, most play, there's an old white Catholic priest washing the feet of, gay, of a gay black man. Why not a gay black man that hates Catholicism or hates all white people, something like that, washing the feet of the old Catholic white priest? In all of this, we don't see any of the things break the normal kind of power dynamic structure. There's never a person of color washing the feet of a white person right? Which is at the very least odd. I would say it's, it was a specific tact. I don't think that was an oversight by them. 
But then here's, here's some that we didn't see. That if you were thinking that this was a, an ad campaign that was going to reach everybody equally, here's some things that you may have seen, which I don't want to argue from, you know, oh, this wasn't there. Why wasn't this there? Because it's their ad. They can do whatever they want. But where's the drag queen washing the feet of a conservative political commentator? How about a BLM activist washing the feet of a white police officer? How about a Biden supporter washing the feet of someone wearing a MAGA hat? Where is the picture of an abortionist washing the feet of one of the babies that they just tore to pieces? Where are those pictures? They were purposely left out. So that was one of my problems with the ad. Another problem with the ad is it's seemingly trying to sell quote unquote, Jesus to progressive people. Just, you know, obviously without the call for repentance and life change, obviously. So simply put, where exactly is the gospel message here? And some people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're, it's only a 60 second ad. They can't do the entire gospel. It's like, do you need 60 seconds to explain the gospel to people? Because I've seen, you know, 15 second versions of TV or of like trailers for TV shows or movies. And I can get a really good idea of what the narrative is and what the point of the movie is going to be. Tell me you can't do that with the gospel. That somehow you can't do that because there have been a lot of ministries that have tried to sell Jesus to progressive people talking about the parts of Jesus that are kind of more hippie and kind of new age and new wave and those types of things. And you have to ask yourself, has that worked? But at the very end, we have to be very specific about the language they use. This is my third problem with the ad is it weaponizes the word hate because the word hate is now a tool of political liberals, leftists, and progressives. Because again, if you don't think that a little girl can become a little boy by shaving off part of the skin on her arm and sewing it into some sort of phallic-looking shape and sewing it onto the top of her vagina, then you hate trans people and you want them to die. If you don't think that we should defund police because it actually does the opposite of protecting black communities where these police need to be doing most of their policing, you hate black people. Also, if you don't want them to get reparations for things that were never done to them by people that never did that to them, then you you still hate them, right? So using the word hate was specifically put there, and I didn't like that at all. Now, there's one interesting thing that I found on their website on an article titled, uh, actually, I forgot the name of the title. I'll just put it in the show notes. But there was another thing that I, that I found that it was just, it was odd whenever I read it. So this is from our article directly from the He Gets Us website. Our work represents the input from Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as well as many others who, though not Christians, share a deep admiration for the man that Jesus was, and we are deeply inspired and curious to explore his story. We look at the biography of Jesus through a modern lens to find new relevance in often overlooked moments and themes from his life. So often overlooked moments like when he washed his disciples' feet, literally one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, certainly in all the Gospels. That's kind of an odd thing to say in light of the things that you're highlighting. But as I read that quote, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis's trilemma, which is that Jesus of Nazareth is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Like those are the only three options. And the reality is, is you can't have deep admiration using their terminology. You can't have deep admiration for a liar or a lunatic. Like it's, it's just not possible. And he gets us with their campaigns. They're not giving a full gospel presentation. So they're not pointing people towards, towards Jesus to look at him as Lord either. So again, you can't have deep admiration for a liar or a lunatic. And if you don't see him as Lord, then you, you have no opinion of Jesus. So 
as I was going through this, and guys, I looked at hundreds of comments and hundreds of people's opinions about this on both sides. There, there were people that, that hated this on, on all sides of the issue. And I just have some questions that I want you to ponder as you evaluate this ad and he gets us in their campaigns overall. First one is this. That's something I talked about a little bit earlier. Where were the pictures of the clearly progressive people washing the feet of the clearly conservative people? We don't see that in any of the campaigns. That should be at least a little bit concerning to you. You should think about that. Another question. If the claim is that this ad is all about mutual submission and the act of humbly loving your neighbor and nothing at all to do with political activism, right? Because they're, they swear they're not political activists. Then why show a bunch of situations that play into the oppressor versus oppressed narrative? All kinds of tropes, right? Popular kid versus not popular kid. You know, the oil field worker and the, the gal that just wants, you know, clean, clean air and drinking water. You know, you have the abortion scene, you have the, the gay scene, you have all these different things. All that plays into oppressor oppressed. Why did they do that? Another question to ask is where exactly in this ad or in the article that I read or in anything on the He Gets Us website, frankly, is the full expression and preaching of the full gospel? Where is it? The, the one that requires faith in Jesus and full repentance of our sinful lifestyles. Where is it? Because again, you might say, oh, well, they can't do everything in a 60-second ad. Okay, let, let, let's say I were to grant that to you. There's got to be a full-throated presentation of the gospel somewhere. You have an entire website. You can just type and type and type forever. Where is it? And I guess this uh, next one goes back to what I was talking about during the Enneagram. Why are so many of you so comfortable with Christians being so damn gullible? Because a lot of Christians, you know, and I've heard from individual people that are like, you know, maybe their wives or their husbands were like, hey, you know, as long as they get the name of Jesus out there, it can't be that bad. Well, it's like, which Jesus, though? Is it hippie Jesus? Is it the, the Jesus that didn't exist? Is it the Jesus that just loves me for who I am and doesn't require anything of me? There's some gullibility here that I think needs to be addressed. And here's something that I've heard as well. I've heard that they are trying to appeal uh, so this is what I've heard about the people that he gets us, that they don't care about what conservatives believe. They, they just don't. They don't care about, about conservative Christians. They're trying to appeal to secular, leftist, progressive, liberal people and to get them interested in Jesus. Okay, they want them to be Jesus curious, right? And that they will convince these people. This is, this is what I understand of their process. They get these people interested. They get them to go to hegetsus.com. And then they will convince these people to use an app or website called Glue. That's G-L-O-O, Glue, which will then get them into direct contact with a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, where the full gospel will then be shared with them. So that's their plan. Get them interested in Jesus. Get them to go to hegetsus.com. Get them to use the app Glue. Get them connected with a gospel-believing church. Which begs this question, is that a good plan? That seems a little risky. There seem to be some extra steps in that plan that I don't find to be too necessary. And then it also begs the question, which is, these churches that are connected with them, how are these churches selected? Is there a faith statement that these churches have to sign on to? Are there theological tenets that they have to approve? Because there is nothing on their website to suggest that. So. Perhaps someone goes through this process and they do end up at a church where the Bible is exposited and is believed, and those people hear the full-throated gospel, and that is like a jackpot stacked on top of winning the lottery for that person. But if there's no standard, like no explicit standard, not like, oh, you know, we'll just pick the churches and, and we'll do our best, 
if there's no explicit standard of, hey, if you don't affirm these points, if you don't uphold these theological tenets, then we can't have you on our list. Then how can we be assured that people aren't just going to end up in a church that leads people into deconstruction? I think that's a fair question. Also, why is it that seemingly the majority of the people that love this ad in these campaigns are secular liberals and progressive Christians? Which really flows in my next point, which is, is it possible that all of the normal voices that many of you trust in Christian circles or conservative circles or conservative Christian circles, is it possible that all these people are wrong about he gets us? Because there are a lot of people that have at the very least expressed concern about he gets us in these ads all the way up to complete condemnation. So there's Lisa Childers, John Cooper, Matt Walsh, Ali Best Stuckey, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Joel Berry, Samuel Say, Megan Basham, Gavin McGinnis, Charlie Kirk, Daryl Harrison, Seth Gruber, Andrew T. Walker, Robbie Starbuck, John Root, Steve Deese, Jason Whitlock, Pastor Ryan Visconti, Pastor Tom Askell, Matt Grassmeyer from The Forging Table, Ryan Horn from The Forging Table, Jake Winkler from The Forging Table. Like, there are a lot of people, and, and add me to that list, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about what's happening here. And actually, in, in our uh, Forging Table group thread, uh, group text thread, Jake Winkler actually posted this, and this goes back to the scripture that I talked about earlier, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. And this was his commentary. This is Jake Winkler again. In order to pay a ransom, it requires that the person held considers themselves a prisoner. There are several people in that ad who consider their actions to be freedom itself. The gravity of the humble washing of the feet for someone who bought your freedom should not result in confidence in your behavior, but great humility, as the apostles showed when Jesus washed their feet. You should feel unworthy of such an act, and I didn't see that reflected in the ad. So I give all that commentary to get down to my ultimate thoughts. So here are my thoughts ultimately, and it's, it's really twofold. This is either a benevolent campaign that is being executed terribly, or this is purposefully a leftist Trojan horse. So let me explain what I mean. The first point, a benevolent campaign that is being executed terribly. And again, if you love He Gets Us, please hang on, okay? I, I, there might be a little bit of a swerve here at the end, so just hang on. I'm going to be giving you my following perspective as someone that is, as douchey as it sounds, that is literally an expert in crafting language and narrative, okay? So my undergraduate work was on corporate communication and leadership. I did a very sales and presentation heavy MBA. I've done a lot of sales in my career, and I've done a lot of different sales training, different programs. I've read a ton of books on marketing and language and copywriting, all that, okay? I've literally, oh, for this show, I've stared at a blank screen and turned it into an hour's worth of content almost 600 times so far just on this podcast. So yes, I am an expert at crafting language. If the people at He Gets Us really are benevolently just wanting to bring people to the feet of the real Jesus by preaching the full gospel, eventually, but by preaching the full gospel, and this ad is the resulting deliverable, then they literally need to fire every single person in their marketing department. They need to fire all their copywriters. They need to fire all their editors and all their strategists, all of them. They have to fire all of them because they're missing the mark. Because when you're crafting a message that you want to get out to the marketplace, whether through a book or a podcast or a sermon or a blog or a video or a marketing campaign, whatever, there are two realities concerning the messages that you have to reckon with. The message that, and here's the first reality, the message that you want your audience to come away with 
And then the second is the message that the audience actually comes away with. So again, there's the message that you want your audience to come away with, and then the message that the audience actually comes away with. So if all the gospel-centered conservative Christians in your potential audience think that your message is nonsensical drivel, and all the secular leftists and progressive Christians love your message, then might I suggest that you, you didn't just miss the target, but the rifle actually blew up in your hand when you tried to shoot it. So, th- so that's, that's one option, that they're just, it's a good campaign made by good people that is being executed terribly. And the second option is that it's a purposeful leftist Trojan horse. Now, this is obviously the more nefarious of the two options, and I can't say one way or another that this is the case at the moment. I can say that it doesn't look great. I can say that I'm very concerned. And again, as I say all the time, for these Marxist, satanic ideologies to take hold in our society, we need two, ty- two kinds of people, really. We need conscious, nefarious actors, number one, and we need useful idiots. We need conscious, nefarious actors trying to put all these things in there for their negative satanic purposes. And then we need just a bunch of dopes to go along to get along. We need a bunch of, you know, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against Christians to just go along with it. But here, we've made it all the way to the end of my commentary on this. This is what I want to tell you. There are two men that I know that I personally know, love, and trust. And these men know the people personally at he gets us. Now I'll leave these two different men nameless for now. Okay. But these two people have a personal relationship and have sat in meetings and met with the top people at he gets us. Okay. Now, as I was going through my comments for this week, these two people, I talked to them individually. I talked to both of them yesterday, actually. These two people separately assured me that he gets us is a legit organization run and funded by Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians that just want to bring the gospel to the masses. They assured me of that. Now, I have no reason at this time to question the judgment of these two men as it pertains to their evaluation of Christian organizations. Now, obviously, if they you know, co-sign an organization at some point, that organization blows up and is awful, then that's going to kind of tinge the way I look at their recommendations moving forward. But as of right now, both of these men that I've known for a while, they, they don't have any problems with what's happening because of what they know that's going on behind the scenes, behind the website, behind the ads. So because of that, and because of that alone, I am actually choosing to give He Gets Us the benefit of the doubt. I'm choosing to do that. I don't want to. <laughs> Believe me, I definitely don't want to. But I'm choosing. And these two men didn't ask me to give them the benefit of the doubt. They just gave me their perspective, which led to me saying, okay, I will put my pessimism aside, I will put my concerns aside, and I will choose to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, it's an incredibly small benefit of the doubt in light of everything that I've said about it up to this point, but I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt nonetheless. But I am going to be up their butts. This is he gets us butts. I'm going to be up their butts with a microscope from here on out. Because again, before Sunday, they were just like an extra thing on my list that I would, you know, look at eventually. Now they're at the forefront of my attention. So anything that they say or do or put out in the public from now on, I am going to comb through it and be incredibly discerning with the things that they put out into the public now because of my concerns. But what I'm going to do and what I would encourage everyone listening to this right now to do 
is let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's give them a little bit of rope. Hopefully they use that rope to save people and not hang them. But we'll just kind of have to see. Hey guys, real quick, as you've likely heard me talk about on the show before, it took me forever before I started taking supplements of any kind. I was always nervous about taking like whey protein and creatine or really anything beyond that because I was just afraid of what was in the product and if it was going to like give me cancer someday or something like that. And I was always scared of these companies, these supplement companies, just cutting corners and using low quality products and eventually putting things in their products that could cause problems for me and my body. So I've always wanted to partner up with an American company that uses high quality ingredients in their supplements and that's why I want to remind you guys that we are partnered with Jocko Fuel. So Jocko Fuel is Jocko Willink's American-based supplement company. So what are some of my favorite products that they make that I also use? They have the best tasting greens powder on the market. I love the peach flavor myself. They also make whey protein powder. The banana cream is my favorite. They make energy drinks, the Jocko Go energy drinks. My favorite is currently a tie between their iced tea lemonade and their pink lemonade flavors. I also use their creel oil, their creatine, their vitamin D, and also their sleep aids. And they make a bunch of other stuff like ready to drink protein, protein cookies, which are actually really delicious. My boys even like them, pre-workout powder, and much, much more. Guys, If you take your health and wellness seriously, then you've got to put high-quality products in your body. Try Jocko Fuel out today by going to www.jockofuel.com. That's jockofuel.com. Use the promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. Again, that's jockofuel.com, promo code UNDAUNTED to get 10% off of your order. All right, guys, we got a lot of ground to cover with the quick hitters today, so let's go ahead and get in. The first one here, a pro-Palestine jihadist attempting a mass shooting at Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church. This is according to Laura Loomer on Twitter. This was actually posted on Tuesday this week, or on Monday this week, rather. Law enforcement sources say the transgender shooter who opened fire at Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, had free Palestine written on the AR-15 they used to carry out the shooting. CNN buried that fact, that key fact, at the bottom of their article. Joel Osteen is a well-known Christian Zionist, and his church was attacked by a pro-Palestinian radical. Osteen has been very supportive of Israel and so has his megachurch. The shooter's legal name is Janice Escalante Moreno and she went by the name Jeffrey. Also, it looks like law enforcement is fudging the criminal record. Notice it says Moreno's place of birth is El Salvador, but then it also says that she is white and non-Hispanic. So there's a lot to take away from this just in general. I am very glad that uh, uh, the worst thing didn't happen, okay? So the shooter was killed by two off-duty police officers. Um, the five-year-old boy that she was with, uh, that was with her, apparently is in critical condition right now. So certainly we're praying for that young man. Uh, he obviously had had nothing to do with this situation. He was just dragged in there by a crazy person. Obviously, this person is a pro-Palestine jihadist, but then in addition to that, they think that they're the opposite gender. So this is a person with serious, serious mental illness. This is just the latest example of a transgender person trying to do a mass shooting, this time targeting churches. And so my big takeaway on this, and with most most of these today, guys, these quick hitters, I'm going to try to be brief and get to the big takeaway just so we can get to the meat of the story. But my big takeaway on this one, if everyone listened to dummies like Shane Claiborne, there is no telling how many innocent people would have been killed by this jihadist. So Shane Claiborne, if you don't know, he's a Christian anti-gun pacifist activist that goes around the country, goes on tour to literally dozens of people, and he convinces these dunderheaded morons, these Christians, to give up their firearms, saying that just the existence of firearms in the hands of anybody is a negative thing. So let's say all these people at his church, the tens of thousands of people that go to all of his services, let's say those people believed people like Shane Claiborne and nobody was armed. Well, this person just walks in with an AR-15 and we don't know how many rounds of ammunition they had on them. 
And now it's fish in a barrel. Or now you're trying to fight someone that has an AR-15 and you're using your wimpy little wrists and fists. So I am so glad that there were two sheepdogs in there that acted. And hopefully the only person that dies because of this incident is the shooter, is the person that intended harm. And hopefully this little boy makes it. I really, really hope he pulls through. Hopefully by the time this is released, I'm recording this on Tuesday. It's releasing on Thursday. Hopefully by the time we get a great update on this young man. But I'm so glad those sheepdogs were there and ready to go. Next quick hitter here, Pastor Alistair Begg saying that Christians should attend gay weddings. So this is according to Christianity Today. During the interview, during an interview last fall, Begg recounted talking to a woman whose grandchild was getting married to someone who was transgender, which is essentially a gay wedding. Begg, who opposes same-sex weddings, suggested she should go to the wedding and bring a gift. By doing so, she would show her love for her grandchild, even though she did not approve of the wedding. Quote, your love for them may catch them off guard but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, these people are always what I thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything, unquote, the evangelical pastor said. He added that Christians should have to take some risks in order to show love to those around them. So, as Joby said last week in our interview on the Ask a Pastor, I'm just like, Joby, I'm a big fan of Alsterbeck. The man has faithfully served Christ and his flock for decades, and this is the first time he's gotten hot water about anything. Uh, the consequences of this have been vast for him. Uh, his radio program was dropped from uh, distribution by the distribution company because they apparently connected with him and his staff, and they doubled down on his comments. And so they're like, okay, we can't have you on a radio. And that took him off of like 1,500 radio stations or something like that. He's had uh, invitations. Uh, to speak at conferences that have been revoked, that have been canceled. Uh, he's certainly going to suffer because of his decision here. And as a quick aside, just to show you how ideologically captured Christianity today is, I want to actually read you the very next paragraph from the article from uh, the little bit that I read earlier. Let me read this. Begg's comments set off a firestorm among some of his fans and supporters, in particular those in conservative Calvinists and other evangelical communities. White evangelicals remain one of the least likely of all U.S. religious groups to support same-sex marriage, according to the Public Religion Research Institute. Suck a wiener, Christianity Today. Oh, it's white evangelicals that are the problem? Oh, the problem is white evangelical Calvinists notice that this is a bad idea. So, again, if you have any qualms or reservations about Christianity Today being completely ideologically captured, you have to take them at their word. But... I've talked about this a little bit on the show before about Christians attending gay weddings. I don't think Christians can do it. I echo Joby's statements that he made last week that this is a participation event. This isn't a birthday party, right? You don't participate in a birthday party. This isn't a work anniversary. This is a marriage where the people that are there are actually participating in what's going on. One of my best friends from college, two of his best friends that he grew up with, they were kind of like all three best friends. Two of those guys ended up being gay for each other, and they were going to be getting married. And he came to me, this is over 10 years ago, and he asked me what he should do. And the advice I told him is I was like, you absolutely cannot go to the wedding. You cannot be a groomsman. You can't be any of those types of things. But you and your wife should be the first family that hosts them for dinner after they get back from their non-marriage, non-honeymoon. You should be the first family to love on them and show them the love of Christ. That was the advice I gave him. That would be the advice I would give to anybody in the same situation. I've given that advice to a lot of people. But we do have to go back to Pastor Begg's comment about Christians would have to take risks in order to show love to those around them. So, to Alistair Begg, if you're listening to this, which I'm sure you're not by now, but if anybody in his staff or in his orbit, because apparently the people on his staff are very sensitive, because I made a comment on one of his posts, because he made a post with a bunch of quote, uh, you know, scriptures about marriage, and I said, where are the scriptures about going to a tranny wedding? And immediately, 
I was put in Instagram jail. So the people on his staff are very sensitive because they uh, marked my comment as hateful language, right? So apparently his staff doesn't really like this. But just in case, I would like Alistair Begg to answer these couple of scenarios that I would like to throw out. Let's say a member of your congregation is a white supremacist. So would you suggest that the people in your congregation take a risk in order to show love to this white supremacist and attend his next Klan rally and participate in the lighting of a cross? I mean, for the sake of the gospel, Pastor Begg. Here's another scenario, Pastor Begg. Let's say there is a member of your congregation that has an ongoing sexual relationship with a 14-year-old girl. Grown man, sexual relationship with a 14-year-old girl. In order to show love, would you suggest that the people in your congregation not only ignore the obvious evil sin taking place, the rape taking place, but instead buy them a gift card to Applebee's for their next date? Maybe uh, throw in a box of condoms, too, just in case. If we're going to take risks in order to show love, where does it end? You have to have an answer for that. So my big takeaway on this is I don't know what's more concerning in this story. The fact that Alistair Begg believed any of this to begin with, or there are fa- the fact that he refuses to receive correction and repent. Because as of right now, he's tripling and quadrupling down. He, he did a sermon where he talked about it. He doesn't see the issue with it. It is astonishing how easily Christians can be taken in by the LGBTQ issue. I don't get it. Of all the issues out there, of all the things that could go wrong, this is that one issue where Christians are just willing to compromise on what the Bible says. Now, I believe that Alistair Begg would say that, you know, homosexual, acting out in a homosexual manner is sinful. I certainly think that he would say that. I would stake my reputation on the fact that he would say that. But then in the same breath, he will say that they need to go and support these people at their wedding. Makes no sense. All right, next quick hitter here, co-president Biden conducting a disastrous news conference after the DOJ let him off the hook for mishandling classified documents. This is according to the Daily Wire. President Joe Biden's press conference last Thursday has sent shockwaves through the Democratic Party with several top officials reportedly saying on background that the event was an unmitigated disaster for the 81-year-old. Biden held the press conference after special counsel Robert Hur released the findings from his criminal investigation into Biden's handling classified material, which concluded that while Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials, no charges should be brought. One of the top reasons that her argued that charges would not be brought was that Biden showed strong signs of having serious memory issues, including not remembering when his son died or when he served as vice president in the Obama administration. Her concluded that a jury would view Biden as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with poor memory. Biden decided to hold a press conference late Thursday night in response to the report. So here are my big, I got a couple of big takeaways here. Here's the first one. If Joe Biden's own DOJ says that he is unfit to stand trial or to face these charges, then the 25th Amendment needs to be used to remove him from office immediately. So I'm going to read the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, Section 4. Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. If he can't stand trial for putting open classified documents in his garage in Delaware, then he can't discharge the powers and duties of his office. He simply can't. 
So my other big takeaway is I wonder, this is a little bit uh, conspiracy theory-ish, but I'll roll with it. I wonder if his team is literally trying to sabotage him. I wonder if his team literally called the press conference knowing that it would be a disaster because it was probably an hour or two after his bedtime because it was at like 7 p.m. And I think they're doing it because they're building a case to replace Biden at the Democratic National Convention. Because at this point, it's too late for anyone to pose a, a real challenge to him in terms of uh, the, the, uh, the primary, rather. So there's not really something there that's going to happen. But at the convention, Joe Biden could get up there and say, look, I can't, I can't do it anymore out of you know my love for this country and my family. I need to step down. Then the, the delegates get to decide who the person is, but also they could toss him out at the convention as well. They don't need him to not do that. They don't need him, they don't, they don't need him to go up there and say that he won't do it, rather. And so that's something that potentially could happen, which goes right in to the next quick hitter, which is the possibility of former First Lady Michelle Obama entering the race for president. So this is according to the New York Post several weeks ago. Biden won't debate. Can't. Our codger in chief can't even read the pre, pre-written script in front of him fast enough to pronounce the words. So forget him which most of us already have. Coming back now, Obama. Not him, her. We've heard this drumbeat for a while, now it's louder. Plans are to grab Michelle for the Democratic presidency choice. Making the music is Barack, the orchestra leader. Michelle says she's terrified Trump will win. No casual burp. Was programmed. She sent a survey to dim biggies asking their feelings about her candidacy. Obama's quietly angling for Joe to go. He's weaseled up to this for a few weeks. Mouths are talking, but mouths are knowing. Over one year ago, summer of 2022, she was in New York City meeting several big hedge CEOs and saying, I am running and I am asking for your support. So here's my big takeaway on this one. If Michelle Obama runs for president, it's a wrap. People are like, oh, they get so offended by this. Guys, I'm telling you, other than Taylor Swift, she is the most famous and liked woman in America. Now, I think she's vapid. I think she's an extreme radical person, but she is one of the most well-liked human beings on the planet. She's, she writes book with words that are, are basically nonsensical and sells tens of millions of copies. The, and again, this election comes down to independence and suburban women. And you know who has incredibly high viewpoints of Michelle Obama? Independence, independence and suburban women. There's not a single candidate that Republicans can put up that would beat her. So if she runs, it's a wrap. Also, big takeaway, Trump loses to every potential Democrat that would take over for Biden except for Kamala Harris. And even then, Trump is seen as, you know, the great orange Satan to where even Kamala Harris might beat him in a general election, even though her numbers are worse than Joe Biden's. So again, the, the people that are supporting Trump, they have to remember what this comes down to. I don't, I don't care about the national polls. And people are saying, oh, but he's, he's winning in battleground states like Arizona and Pennsylvania and Michigan and sometimes Wisconsin and then in Georgia and, and all these different places. But he's going to lose big time with independents and suburban women. You have to ask yourself, what is Trump doing right now that's appealing to those women? What's he doing right now to appeal to independents? Do you think independents are going to break two to one for him like they did whenever he was against Hillary Clinton in 2016? Because they broke two to one for Biden in 2020. What has Trump done to counteract that? You got to ask that question. All right, next quick hitter here. Dr. Fauci admitting finally that the six feet apart COVID rule wasn't based in science nor reality. 
So this is according to the Western Journal. Americans who trusted the science when Dr. Anthony Fauci told them to be six feet apart to prevent the spread of COVID-19 learned in January there was no science behind the edict. After two days of interviews behind closed doors to the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, a news release posted on the website of the House Oversight Committee revealed that Fauci claimed that the six feet apart social distancing recommendation promoted by federal health officials was likely not based on any data. He characterized the development of the guidance by stating it sort of just appeared. So the COVID czar admits that the six feet thing sort of just appeared. So here's the big takeaway. And yet, there are still soft-headed people demanding that we trust the science and trust the experts. Guys, what more do you need to see? Because obviously this was just a, a blip on the radar. No, this wasn't national news that Fauci basically admitted the stuff he was demanding of people had no basis in reality. The six feet apart thing saved no lives. It didn't protect any human beings. And we're just, yeah, whatever. And the truth is, is the next pandemic or pandemic, the next time this comes up, the same lot of you are going to be sitting there doing what you're doing right now, which is just hanging on every word of the government officials that are going to tell you how to conduct your life. And I think I've said this on the show before. I have a family member who still wears gloves and a mask when they go to Walmart. They still will put their non-perishable groceries in a separate room in the house and disinfect it before they put it up. We've known for over three years now that COVID doesn't live on surfaces, but this person just believes what the CDC says. And just in case, just in case, wants to make sure by disinfecting, you know, boxes of Cheez-Its. It's just nonsense, but hey, this is the world we live in now. All right, next one here. This one makes me sad. But Ron DeSantis suspending his campaign for president. This is according to NBC News. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, once seen as a formidable opponent to Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary, suspended his campaign on Sunday, January the 21st, and endorsed the former president. The move comes two days before the New Hampshire primary. So obviously this tells you how long I've been wanting to talk about this because this happened a long time ago. I haven't had a chance to talk about it. He's, he's who I think would be the best person out of all the people currently running for president. He's the most conservative and he gets the most done. The things he's done in Florida have literally turned Florida from a purple state into a deep red state. He keeps winning on the legislative side. And also, in my opinion, people are like, oh, well, we'll just wait for 2028. I don't think he runs in 2028, to be honest. I mean, politicians have a time. And it's like, I'm going to run during my time. And 2028 is a long, long time from now. It's a long time from now. And so he's going to be leaving the governor's mansion of Florida in two years. And so for a year and a half, he would basically be a non-entity politically and then try to get back into the race. I mean, maybe he does it. If he does, I will very, very likely be supporting him, but I just don't really see it. Here's my big takeaway on this one. If and when Trump loses to Biden or whoever the Democrats prop up again, if Trump loses again, I don't want to hear your bitching. I just don't. Because you had a guy like Ron DeSantis just sitting there, a serious guy that has all the fight and moxie of a Trump, but it isn't as funny, right? He's maybe a little bit more socially awkward. Maybe he's not as entertaining. Maybe his, his tweets or his truths or whatever aren't going to be as funny to you. But he was a serious candidate that you just let go by the wayside because of your just singular focus on Donald Trump. Again, need I remind you, he's probably going to be convicted on one of the four cases that are against him before the general election. And independents have said if he is convicted of any of these crimes that they won't vote for him. Republicans have said the same. And Trump can't lose any of these particular groups of people and still win the election. He just doesn't have that. 
And so, and here's the thing with a lot of these Trump people. And again, if you're a Trump person, like I plan on voting for Donald Trump, right? He's going to be the candidate for Republican. And in November, I will be pulling the lever for Donald Trump. So any of you that are like screaming at me right now, wearing your MAGA hats, just remember, I voted for him in 2020. I'm planning on voting for him again in November. But the thing that you have to remember is even if he is elected, those cases don't just go away. He can't pardon himself on state cases. So he could be convicted of these cases and sentenced to prison time as the president of the United States. And at best, he can only serve another four years. So what exactly is the goal? Again, again, I just don't see it. Again, I plan to vote for him because even as bad as I think Trump is, as personally uh, foibless as I think he is, he's better than Joe Biden. He's better than Kamala Harris. He's better than Pete Buttigieg. Like he's better than all these people. But if he loses, which I still think that he loses in November, I don't want to hear you complaining. Please don't come and talk to me about how they stole the election and then proceed to not prove it. Because here we are standing here in 2024. We still have not seen the actual hard evidence in court showing that this cabal of evil Democrats stole the election from Donald Trump. Was there chicanery? Absolutely. Were there fake ballots and dead people that, that you know, voted for Biden? Absolutely. Was it enough to sway the results of the election in the Electoral College? They didn't prove it. Trump didn't even allege it in court. So what are we talking about? All right, next quick hitter here. A Tennessee jury convicting six pro-life activists of violating the FACE Act. So this is according to ABC News. A Tennessee jury has convicted six anti-abortion protesters of violating federal laws after they blocked the entrance of a reproductive clinic outside Nashville nearly three years ago. The jury's decision handed down late Tuesday, January 30th, after a week-long trial, marks the latest development in a case that has been closely watched by conservative groups who have accused the federal government of unfairly targeting abortion opponents by using 1994 federal law designed to protect abortion clinics from obstruction and threats. Reproductive rights supporters counter the law, known as Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, or the FACE Act, is more critical than ever in shielding abortion providers from violence now that the constitutional right to abortion has been revoked. While the federal grand jury initially indicted 11 people who participated in the blockade last year, six were convicted on Tuesday. Those are Chester Gallagher, Paul Vaughn, Heather Adani, Calvin Zastro, Coleman Boyd, and Dennis Green. They face up to 10 and a half years of prison time and fines of up to $260,000, sentencing hearing, sentencing hearings will take place on July 2nd. So on this story, I really have no idea uh, what to think about what the sentencing will look like, considering the fact that these people convicted these individuals for standing in a hallway, praying, singing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, trying to convince these women not to murder their children. I can't imagine that they're going to get a slap on the wrist. But my big takeaway on this one is a country with evil and unjust laws cannot and will not stand. I hate saying this because of how much I love this country and how patriotic I am, but the end of America's era of dominance will soon be at an end. Because you can't have laws enacted in this way, because no matter how you slice it, it's evil. Because these people were not violent. They were, some, and sometimes quietly, but other times through prayer and singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, worshiping God and trying to convince these women not to kill image bearers of God. And if you do that in this country, we will arrest you and potentially put you in prison for over a decade and fine you a quarter of a million dollars. But if you want to blow up a uh, you know facility like a police station, we're fine with that. If you want to disrupt a conservative speaker on a college campus, that's fine. If you want to uh, scream anti-Semitic slurs, at Jews as they walk across the sidewalk, 
that no big deal. If you want to come into this country illegally and perform crimes that lead to the harm or death of Americans, hey, it's just it's the cost of doing business. We're very, very quickly turning into an evil country. I don't know what to do about it. All right, next quick hitter here. A 50-year-old Canadian teacher competing against teenage girls in swimming competitions and changing in the same locker rooms. So this is according to Rebel News. Rebel News was tipped off by concerned parents that there was something perverse happening at the pool at Richmond Hill Aquatic Center's Fall Classic Swimming Competition the weekend of October the 20th in Markham Pan Am Center, which is near Toronto. Namely, at one of the swim races, 10 competitors took part. Nine of the competitors had much in common. They were female, and they were either 13 or 14 years of age. Alas, the 10th competitor was Nicholas J. Sapita, a.k.a. Melody Wiseheart, a member of the Orangeville Otter Swim Club. That's right. Somehow, 13 and 14-year-old girls were swimming against a 50-year-old biological male. So, that biological male, described in this Rebel News report, is a college professor at York University. So, interestingly enough, two of this guy's areas of research are children and youth. So. The Rebel News reporter uh, that was on site also confirmed that this degenerate piece of filth was allowed access to the young girl's locker room and changed with the girls present. So right to my big takeaway on this one. When will the pathetic men of Canada finally stand up? There are a lot of Canadian men that listen to this show, and I'm not talking about y'all. But we're at a swim competition where there are parents present and fathers present. And you're telling me that an anonymous tip had to be given to a news reporter for him to show up and make a stink about this? Because I can tell you this much. The guys in my Sunday school, the guys in my foxhole, if we show up to the Edmond Public Schools Aquatic Center and we hear that there's a man in the girls' locker room, we're throwing down. You're going to see us on the news and we're going to be wearing an orange jumpsuit, all of us. Because as I told you before, I don't have any daughters, but the men in my life that I love, I'll, I'll hurt people for their daughters. Best believe it. If their dad's not around and I am and someone's trying to hurt their daughter or changing in the room, showing his wiener to these little girls, best believe we're going to throw down. It's going to be bad. It's going to be a bloodbath. Where were the Canadian men in this moment? Yeah, there were a lot of moms there, but there were dads there as well. Where were you? And let's say they, this guy wasn't given access to their locker room to change. You let this guy compete against your girls? I'm so tired of this idea that we have to be, you know, super quiet and super accepting, and we just don't really understand this guy and his past and his history, and it just, and we're, we're potentially letting our 13- and 14-year-old daughters suffer, because at, at best... This 50-year-old man beats your girls and they don't win a race that they should have won because they were racing against a 50-year-old adult male. But at worst, again, this guy, like, you know, his, his areas of study are children and youth. And this is going to be a little rough for some of you to hear. So if you got kids in the car or something like that, maybe skip forward about 45 seconds or so. But I can't help but think about this. Can you believe, would you believe if I told you that this man has never gotten himself off sexually thinking about young girls? Because a lot of these people are autogynophilic. So these men that think they're women, what they are is they are attracted to themselves sexually by looking in the mirror and seeing their male bodies in feminine form. So with long hair and lipstick and a dress and those types of things. And a lot of these men are dressing up to look like young girls, 
which means they are pedophilic, autogonophilic individuals. So you're telling me that this man got no sexual satisfaction from being in a locker room watching 13 and 14 year old girls change while he himself was naked? Nothing? If you see a drag queen, you know, reading out your local library, that would be a great question to ask. Hey, how often have you masturbated thinking about young girls and boys? Because again, these people are autogynophilic and in some forms, pedophilic autogynophiles. And we're just going to sit here and be quiet. We're just going to go along to get along. Again, we're just going to be one of those, oh, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against Christians. We're just going to try to wash this guy's feet. Yeah, we can wash his feet in blood. See how that goes. All right, next one here. The mother of a school shooter being convicted of manslaughter. This is according to CNN. Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the teenager who killed four students at Oxford, Michigan High School in 2021, was found guilty Tuesday, February the 6th, on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter in a novel uh, legal case that stood as the test of the limits of who's responsible for school shootings. The jury of 12 deliberated for more than 10 hours. Jennifer Crumbly looked down at her clasped hands as the verdict was read. She was taken from the courtroom in shackles. Crumbly, 45, had pleaded not guilty to the charges in the November 30, 2021 mass shooting at Oxford High School in which her son killed four students and wounded six students and a teacher. She faces up to 15 years in prison and her sentencing hearing was set for April the 9th. She has been buying bars since her arrest in a Detroit warehouse days after the shooting. So. The result of this, this conviction, has been universally praised. Everyone's like, this is great. She's a terrible woman. She's a terrible mother. And I'll put, you know, an article in the show notes. You can read about it. She was a terrible mother. Certainly a terrible woman. Her husband is currently, he's going to be going on trial before too long either. And they're kind of sniping at each other through this whole thing. Bad parents, definitely. Horrible parents. It seems like they could have done some things to intercede here. And stop this boy from doing the shooting. This boy had his gun in his backpack and he was brought to the school office because he had threatened to shoot up the school. And he, they brought his parents in and the parents nor the school administrators checked what was on his person or checked his backpack or his locker. And then he goes and gets his gun and shoots up the school. There's a lot of people that made mistakes here. But I'm really conflicted about a story like this. And it goes to my big takeaway, which is that this sets an unbelievably dangerous precedent. Making, and this is why. So this kid was charged as an adult. So you're saying on one hand that this kid was conscious enough of his actions to do premeditated murder that he shouldn't be tried as a juvenile, but as an adult. And yet you are convicting another adult for a crime that they did not commit. Convicting them of manslaughter and potentially sending them to prison for over a decade. Help me understand, because either the, the nefarious actor here, the, the child that decided to use the gun to kill people, either that person is a juvenile that had no idea what they were doing and that it was wrong, or they're an adult that was fully conscious of that, and thus they should be the only one paying the penalty. Because think about the people that are currently in prison. You've heard people make this point. I'm certainly not unique in this. There are people that are currently in prison, and I would say most of the people that are currently in prison had terrible mothers and fathers, and certainly absent fathers. and so. Let's say you're a deadbeat dad. You get a woman pregnant because you want to have sex and don't want to wear a condom. She gets pregnant and then you just take off, right? And let's say 16 years down the line, that kid shoots another kid in a gang shooting. Do we convict the deadbeat dad and the kid now? Is that what we're doing? That this sets an unbelievably 
horrible precedent because here's here's the reality. Are there some people that are in prison that grew up in horrible family situations? Absolutely, that's the majority. But then are there also people that are in prison now that were raised in loving families? Raised by mother and father that loved them, that participated in their education, that went to their ball games, that, you know, supported them, that took them to church, that did all those things? Certainly those people exist as well. So if a kid in spite of all those things uh, decides to go and do something like this, something murderous, something awful, something illegal, are we really going to blame the parents for that? It's a very dangerous precedent. We'll have to see how it goes with the trial of the dad, but I don't really like the direction that this is heading. All right, next quick hitter here. The man that beheaded a satanic idol statue at Iowa State Capitol building being charged with a hate crime. So this is according to The Guardian. A Mississippi man accused of destroying a statue of a pagan idol at Iowa State Capitol is now being charged with a hate crime. The statue was brought to the Capitol by the Satanic Temple of Iowa under state house rules allowing religious displays in the building during the holidays. Excuse me. Michael Cassidy, a former congressional and legislative candidate from Mississippi, was charged the next day with fourth degree criminal mischief, a misdemeanor. He told the conservative website, The Sentinel, that my confidence is held captive by the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree. And so I acted. So I'm going to go back to this story. Probably not a popular opinion on this one. I thought this was kind of stupid. Like, I heard the guy's explanation and I want to like it because he's like, I'm held captive by the word of God. And so I had to act. You beheaded a statue? I mean, okay, yeah, you you really showed those Satanists you beheaded their behemoth statue. Like, I I thought it was kind of stupid. This whole thing's kind of dumb. I think he did it to get attention because he did it and then immediately walked over to police and turned himself in and said, arrest me, I'm a bad person. But my big takeaway on this one is there should be no separate categories called hate crimes. There, there, There just shouldn't be. What crime is committed against somebody where there isn't hate involved, hate in your heart. Because you'll hear these things where, you know, a white person goes and shoots up, like the guy in Buffalo, he went and shot up a, you know, a a grocery store or something like that because he was targeting and killing black people. Is it really a separate category of evil? This guy took a rifle with the intent of murdering a bunch of people and he did that. So is it extra bad because he wanted to murder people because of an immutable characteristic of theirs? Is there a separate category of hate? I just don't quite see it. But since this is a crime that we can be charged with in 2024, it does, again, it kind of beggars belief at this point to, to think th- this guy gets charged with a hate crime for beheading a satanic statue, even though Satanists would tell you that they themselves are not a religion, right? They're an anti-religion. Satanists don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in God. They believe in nothing. They believe that we're highly evolved chimps. Chimps, their entire worldview is something that is outside of religion, thus not something that is protected by the Constitution. Okay, not something that any of the founders would have ever thought possible that, oh, a Satanist, an anti, you know, uh, God of any, t- any kind type person would be protected under these laws. But you're charged with a hate crime if you do that. But if you're a BLM activist and you target white cops for you know, your Molotov cocktails or your bricks, that's not a hate crime. Definitely not a hate crime. Uh, if pro-Palestine people hurt Jews or pro-Israel people, not a hate crime. Definitely not. If a bunch of black kids gang up on a white kid that's by himself and beat him up because he's white, not a hate crime. And again, it kind of, you shouldn't have to say it, but it, it does bear repeating 
if we flip the races on any of these things, then it's national news for weeks. I mean, just think about it. If a group of 10 white kids found a black kid by himself and beat him up simply because he was black, we would be flooded with social media and mainstream news articles about the fact that we still live in a racist country and it's basically Jim Crow all over again. But we don't see those stories. And we've seen several stories, even just in the last couple of months, of literally groups of black kids beating up white kids because they were white and because they could. Now, some of those kids are going to uh, go to jail for that. Some of them will get a slap on the wrist, but none of them are going to be charged with a hate crime. But a dork in Iowa decides he wants to behead a statue like a real, real man, and that's a hate crime? Give me a break. All right, next quick hitter here. Two Navy SEALs dying during a mission off the coast of Somalia. This is according to CNN. The two U.S. Navy SEALs who went missing off the coast of Somalia on January 11th are dead, the U.S. Central Command said after searching for them for 10 days. We regret to announce that after a 10-day exhaustive search, our two missing U.S. Navy SEALs have not been located and their status has been changed to deceased, Central Command said in a statement on Sunday. Out of the respect for the family, no further information will be released at this time. So here's my quick hitter, or my big takeaway on this quick hitter. Did you even know that this happened? Did you have any idea that we lost two of our best military members? Because this was a story that was in the news and out of the news almost immediately, which takes me to my bigger takeaway on this. Is this likely never happens if Joe Biden and his administration, which is essentially Barack Obama's third term, weren't so damn soft on Iran? The reason these men were even doing this mission is because they were boarding a ship that they thought was running illicit Iranian weapons. These weapons very well could have been paid for with the pallets of cash that the Obama administration sent over there. And the, the seas were really rough and one of the seals fell off and his partner jumped in after him to try and save him. And then we don't know what happened. We don't know if they drowned, got eaten by sharks, whatever, but we know that they, they suffered and died horrible deaths. This is a direct reflection on the soft foreign policy, specifically the soft policies against Iran. Our seals shouldn't have even been there. During the Trump administration, our seals weren't having to do a lot of these interdiction things because Iran was pretty nervous, but they're not nervous under Joe Biden. And this is connected to the next story here, so I'll get to it. Three U.S. troops being killed in a drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan. This is according to CNN. I know I've quoted a lot of CNN here today, but that's just the way the cookie crumbled. Three U.S. Army soldiers were killed and more than 30 service members were injured in a drone attack overnight on a small U.S. outpost in Jordan, U.S. officials told CNN, marking the first time U.S. troops have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of the Gaza War. The killing of three Americans at Tower 22 in Jordan near the border with Syria is a significant escalation of an already precarious situation in the Middle East. Officials said the drone was fired by Iran-backed militants and appeared to come from Syria. It is still being determined which militia group specifically is responsible. So here's my big takeaway on this one. Let me know if you've heard this before. This likely never happens if Joe Biden and his administration, which is the Obama third administration, were not so damn soft on Iran. This is where we are now. We have these militant groups, whether it's the Houthis or any other of these uh, militant Islamist regimes that are under the Iranian flag. None of them would be doing this if Trump was in office. Again, I've said very, very critical things of Trump, certainly on this podcast. But everything was peaceful under Trump. And that's because people believe that Trump was going to do stuff. <laughs> and it's amazing what happens when you think Trump is actually going to follow up on his words. The problem with Joe Biden is he's not even making idle threats. Because it's one thing like Barack Obama said he was going to draw a red line in Syria. And then when Syria crossed that red line, he did nothing. That's bad. But Joe Biden's not even making the threats. 
he's basically asking them, pretty please don't do this, which is not a great, it's, it's not an effective tactic whatsoever when you're dealing with the type of people in Iran. All right, next quick hitter here. Ohio lawmakers overriding the veto of Governor Mike DeWine and allowing for the ban of so-called sex change surgeries for minors. This is according to the Christian Post. Lawmakers in Ohio have overridden Governor Mike DeWine's veto of a bill that bans cosmetic sex change surgeries with the prescription of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors, allowing the proposed legislation to become law. The Ohio Senate voted 24 to 8 on a Wednesday to override the veto of House Bill 68, which also prohibits biological males who identify as female from taking part in girls' sports, affirming an earlier veto overridden by the Ohio House. So at the time when I was talking about this story, before the the House and Senate of Ohio had a chance to vote on it. I told you this was going to happen. It was very, very predictable. Right to my big takeaway. Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, should be impeached for this. Republicans in that state, or any state for that matter, should have no tolerance for demonic actions like these. Again, Mike DeWine is either a conscious nefarious actor on this issue, or he's just a yellow-bellied coward. And so I don't know how much longer he's supposed to be in office. I really have no idea. But if you are a Republican in Ohio, you need to talk to your state senator and your state representative and advocate for him to be removed from office. That's exactly what he deserves. He does not deserve to stay in the governor's mansion a second longer. All right, next quick hitter here. Cases of teens suffering from cannabis-induced psychosis going through the roof. This is according to Wall Street Journal. Rates of diagnoses for cannabis-induced disorders were more than 50% higher at the end of November 2023 than in 2019, healthcare analytics company Truveta said this week. The trend is contributing to the broader burden of caring for people who developed mental health and addiction problems during the pandemic. Symptoms of serious mental disorders, including schizophrenia, often emerge in adolescence. Cannabis can be ice, can't be isolated as the culprit in any particular case, but large studies show a clear link between frequent and more potent cannabis use and higher rates of psychosis, particularly in young users, said Dr. Deepak D'Souza, professor of psychiatry, psychiatry there it is, at Yale University School of Medicine. Even one psychotic episode following cannabis use was associated with a 47% chance of a person developing schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, a 2017 study in the American Journal of Psychiatry showed. The risk was highest for people 16 to 25 years old and higher than for substances including amphetamines, hallucinogens, opioids, and alcohol. Here's my big takeaway on this one. Can we please stop pretending that cannabis is no big deal? I see this across the board, including in conservative and uh, Christian circles. We just don't see cannabis as a big deal. You got people that, you know, are, are just fine, but then they go on vacation in Denver or somewhere in Colorado. And it's like, hey, let's go to the weed shop. Like, it's no big deal. And then we come home and then we try to tell our kids to not do those things. Or we say, ah, you know, kids will be kids. But the evidence showing the, the deleterious effects on children when they use any type of marijuana is stark and clear. And there are a lot of people that are really, well, I'll talk about that a little bit more later in terms of people that are advocating for the legalization of drugs. But the problem is, is that the law is a teacher. That was one of my biggest things that when Oklahoma was considering um, you know, bringing in medical marijuana, I was like, okay, it never stays at medical marijuana. It always goes to just, you know, free use marijuana. That's basically what it's going to be. But the law is a teacher. And so when kids see that something is legal, they think it's moral, especially if they don't grow up in a family that tells them anything different. And the reality is, is the weed and the edibles and things that are taken now 
by kids or by anyone that uses it, it's not the same thing as back in the 70s. So all these men, if it's green, it's from God, it's no big deal, man. All those people, these were people that were getting high in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and maybe periodically now. It's way different now. And I'm not talking about, you know, the person that has cancer that's taken, you know, a quarter of a CBD gummy because they're in so much pain and they just want to get some sleep. That's not what I'm talking about. Because the overwhelming majority of people that use marijuana are doing it to get high. They're not doing it because they don't want to take any more opioids. They're doing it because they want to get high. And our kids are seeing that as a society and it's having major, major negative consequences. All right, next story here. So we'll actually get into the drug stuff here. This is the state of Oregon reversing their liberal drug law due to the stark increase in overdoses. This is according to NBR. Oregon voters passed the most liberal drug law in the country in November of 2020, decriminalizing possession for small amounts of hard drugs. Under ballot measure 110, instead of arresting drug users, police now give them a citation and point them towards treatment. The law passed with 58% of the vote and also funneled hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis tax revenue to fund new recovery programs. But more than three years later, the drug crisis in Oregon, like many other places battling the fentanyl crisis, has gotten worse. And that's prompted a fierce political debate in Oregon about whether Measure 110 has succeeded or failed. I don't know what there's to debate about. It's clearly failed. So my big takeaway on this is, no, legalizing drugs won't solve the drug problem because, duh, you morons. Like, okay, lax laws leads to lax behavior, right? That's what I just talked about. The law is a teacher, right? The more people will use whatever the drug is when it's legal because they're going to say, things like what's the big deal it's legal like if it was really that bad it wouldn't be legal right and now we all know that just because something is legal does not make it moral right or safe but the law should reflect that but when you hear people like joe rogan's a prominent person they always talk about portugal like uh you know portugal they they legalize all drugs and oh isn't it's like a miracle there's like no crime and portugal's way better portugal's not america in portugal doesn't have a bunch of fentanyl-laced illicit drugs coming over their southern border. They don't have any of that. These are not the same types of populace. These are not the same types of people. They don't have any type of a libertarian strain in Portugal. It doesn't exist over there. But here's the reality. People, morons, in Colorado thought if we legalize marijuana, it's going to get rid of the black market because the state's going to take over, they're going to tax it, it's going to be good, we can use this money to pay for iPads for the kids in the elementary schools. But wouldn't you know it, way more people started using marijuana in Colorado. And guess what the black market did? It grew everywhere where marijuana has been legalized. The demand for it goes up, which makes the black market demand go up as well. Because if the state is charging, I don't know what what weed costs, but if they're charging X amount plus whatever percentage tax on top of it, don't you think Pedro around the corner is going to be able to sell you a dime bag or sell you, you know, an ounce or sell you a few joints or something like that at cheaper than what the store down the street does? He's not going to be charging you tax. He doesn't have to send tax back to the cartels. He just has to send the cash. So again, a lot of you are more than willing to be duped into thinking that it's no big deal. Marijuana is no big deal. Yeah, why don't we just legalize drugs? Because I like Joe Rogan. His comedy's funny. So let's just legalize drugs because he thinks it's a good idea. It'd be a terrible, horrific idea. So if in your state, anything like that comes up on the ballot, including marijuana, vote no every single time. All right, next one here. 
Christian rapper Lecrae calling for reparations. So this is according to a clip that was posted by Jared D or Jared H Moore on Twitter. So let me just go ahead and play this clip for you. So I'll play the audio for the podcast and we'll put the video on YouTube. So here's the clip from the podcast. There's been no compensation for what our, you know, family has endured. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I always think about that. Black mm-hmm. people shouldn't pay taxes. That's my first you, easy they, reparation. Hey, that's a good reparation. Or return. Easy. They shouldn't have to pay taxes. Yeah. I'm with that. Easy. <laughs> I'm with that. So that, nobody got to get no checks out of account. Just don't make us pay taxes. And when people struggle with this concept, because <laughs> let's, be, let's be real. We all have white friends. Yeah. We all uh, are involved in circles of... of, of Influence, affluence. Yes, of, of different white friends. And, and, and it's interesting because we get to have these conversations that people don't get to have publicly. So they, mm-hmm. the internet is like shaking fingers and we yeah. are sitting down across the table like having these conversations yeah, 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 on a regular yeah, yeah. basis. On so, a boat, anywhere. Yeah. Wherever. Right. So right. one of the things that I was just recently sharing with one of our uh, friends is that my great, my four times great grandfather, he was, um, he owned 80 acres of land. Oh, yeah. 80 acres. He was schemed against and uh, said he owed $57. And they plotted against him because they were jealous of this land. Said he owed $57, created a case against him, and then lynched him. Dang. For 57 bucks. Mm. We lost all 80, 80 acres of land in our family, and he was lynched for $87. My uh, His wife tried to go in hiding, and she ended up disappearing, which we learned later she was killed. So mm. all of their children raised each other. You know what I'm saying? And so people then look at us and say, how can you demand reparations? Mm. I'm like, well, I mean, if you think about it, 80 acres of land was just taken from my family, and my three times great-grandfather was just murdered. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, bro, how do you? what, what do you want me to say? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know what podcast that was or whatever, so I would like to give credit to them, but, you know, just kind of is what it is. Um, Just to go to his story real quick, let's say his story is actually legitimately true. He says they plotted against him and took his land. Who's they? Who's they, Lecrae? Can you answer that? More on that in a second. So I used to be a big Lecrae fan. When I worked for Major League Baseball, Nas came and did a concert at one of our studios. Lecrae was actually my guest, Lecrae and his manager and, you know, uh, some of his producers. And so I used to be a big fan of his, but he's been going down this woke road for a while, right? He kind of hit mainstream and then, you know, Trump becoming president seemed to have broken his brain. And then when George Floyd OD'd in police custody, that broke his brain. And people like him, the I guess the siren song of cultural Marxism is just too enticing for them, including Lecrae. But my big takeaway on this one is only by doing univariate analysis could you ever think reparations to black Americans would be a good idea. Because there's so many questions, and I've talked about this a lot, but where would the money come from? Where exactly? Whose money are we taking and giving it to whom? And so then there's a lot of other things that are, would, would never be answered by these people because it's just an idea. It's a fanciful idea that they just get to say out loud. But what about the descendants of black slavers? Is Lecrae a descendant of a, a black slave or a black slaver? Also, what if they came to America after slavery was abolished? One of my best friends is a black kid who came to this country after slavery was abolished. Well, he didn't come to this country. His family came to this country from like one of the Virgin Islands, right? And so that, that wasn't during the slave trade that he was brought to America. Does he get reparations? What if they're in a mixed family? What if there's a black dad and a white mom? Like, do, does, the, does the white woman, does she have to, like, walk across to the other side of the dinner table and, like, hand a check to her husband? Like, speaking of which, 
uh, just about everyone uh, that's black isn't a hundred percent black. So you, you've seen these people. I think there was Sonny Hostin, uh, one of the uh, people from the view, like she goes back and I think she's like Puerto Rican and black or something like that. But she found out live on television that she was actually a descendant of a slave owner. And so a lot of these people that are like, Oh, I'm black. They're not a hundred percent black. They have some mixture at some point of, you know, some European or some, some other type of uh, ethnicity that isn't black African. So do those people get a pro pro rated amount based on the percentage black they are? Also, are we going to demand reparations dating back to slavery at any time in any place? Because again, people love to talk about the African slave trade to America and for good reason. It was one of the most horrific evils, but it's an evil that was common to all of human history until white Europeans said, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Again, the first three countries that outlawed it uh, were not Nigeria and Syria and Brazil, Brazil being the country that got the majority of the African slaves during the African slave trade. It was England, the United States, and France were the first three countries that outlawed slavery. So for me, I'm Choctaw Indian, and I'm Irish and Scottish, okay? So I'm kind of a Celtic mutt with a little bit of American Indian. Choctaw Indians were slavers and slaves. So do I go back to like the, the Chickasaws or the, or, the Choc- or to the Cherokees or one of these other nations that took my people captive? Do I get money from them? Also, at some point in my lineage, people uh, of my uh, background would have been enslaved. Like, do you even know where the word slave comes from? It comes from Slav because most of the Slavic people were enslaved by Islamist or Islamic slavers. If you look back at the history of slavery, so many Slavs were in prison that they ended up etymologically becoming the word slave. So can I go back to one of these Islamic nations that probably enslaved one of my Celtic ancestors and get reparations? Like, where, where exactly do we stop it? But ultimately, people that publicly advocate for reparations, people like Lecrae and these, these dorks that were on this podcast with them, they just advocate for it because it sounds good. That's it. They can, they can just virtue signal and it sounds good. Oh yeah, black people aren't going to pay back their student loans anymore. They're not going to pay taxes. Why? They can't explain why. And my final thought on this is I cannot and will not provide reparations to someone for something that I did not do. Namely, I will not provide reparations to someone that was never a slave when I myself was never a slave owner. This is stupid. Because the, the men sitting around that table, the three black men sitting around that table during that clip, none of them have been enslaved ever. And all these, imagine if we flip the races on the discussion, let's say three white guys were getting around. It's like, oh yeah, you know, we've got some black friends that just don't quite understand it. Those guys would be rung up and canceled so easily, but three black men can get around and be like, oh, you know, all these dumb white people in our lives that don't think we should get reparations. Here's an anecdote. Give me a break. All right, next quick hitter here. Elon Musk announcing the first implantation of a Neuralink chip in a human brain. So this is according to NPR. Elon Musk says his ambitious plan to let humans wirelessly connect their brains with phones and other devices has taken a new step, announcing the first human has received a brain transplant from his Neuralink company. The person who wasn't identified is recovering well, Musk said via X, formerly known as Twitter. Which, by the way, can we, if you have to say formerly known as Twitter every time, let's just call it Twitter. Enough. All right. Here's his quote from uh, Elon Musk. 
Initial results show promising neuron spike detection, he added, referring to the cellular activity between our brains and our nervous systems. The news comes months after Neuralink began recruiting potential human test subjects for its clinical trial. The company got Food and Drug Administration approval for the trial last May, saying it wanted to enlist people ages 22 and above who are living with quadriplegia due to a spinal cord injury or amotrophic amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, the disease that robs people of the ability to control their bodies. Here's my big takeaway on this one. It's going to be quick. For the love of God, do not do this. Guys, don't do this. This will not stop at quadriplegics or people with ALS. Okay, you want to talk about iRobot? You want to talk about Minority Report? You want to talk about all this like future, future crime, like brain stuff? Do not put a chip in your brain so that you can more easily open up your email. Please do not put a chip in your brain that that will help you move your body because if the chip can help you move your body, don't you think someone else can use that chip to move your body for you? To force you to do things that you don't want to do? This is dystopian. For the love of God, don't do it. Next quick hitter here. The state of Alabama is executing death row inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith by nitrogen hypoxia. This is according to the Washington Post. Alabama carried out the world's first known execution by nitrogen hypoxia a couple of Thursdays ago. The unprecedented method was administered to Kenneth Eugene Smith, a prisoner on death row for his role in a contract killing more than three decades ago. Smith's execution was preceded by months of legal battles over whether it was constitutional to use nitrogen hypoxia in capital punishment, as the method was not known to have ever been used before the, in a prison setting. Alabama prison officials kept many of the details about how they would carry out the new method a secret from the public. So to be honest with you, a story like this, yeah, there's some details that are, that are worth talking about. Can we talk about the fact that we're making execution so complicated? Because executions back in the day, hangings, guillotine, those types of things, they weren't very complicated. And the success rate was incredibly high. I, I guess I just don't quite understand why these people, because again, in this country, we only execute people that are murderers, uh, typically murderers and rapists or kidnappers and, and murderers or people that murdered multiple people. You know, there's always some sort of extra, you know, uh, extenuating circumstance. Why do we think that these people shouldn't pay, feel pain during their execution? I, I, I don't get it. Like, I'm certainly not advocating for torturing these people, but like hanging or, or guillotine or firing squad, there's going to be some level of pain, but then the deed is done. Like, why are we experimenting with all these other different ways of doing it? But to be honest with you, the details of the story, which I just got into a little bit myself, uh, it's, it's, it's really a distraction away from the real story here, which is, you know, right here to the big takeaway. If taxpayers are going to be forced to keep these murderers alive for decades before they are executed, then what is the point exactly? Every time there's one of these cases about someone on death row and is the governor going to commute the sentence or is any of this thing going to happen? These people, I've, I've, they're almost always on death row for multiple decades, 20, 30 years sometimes. And taxpayers are paying to keep that person alive. I know that the court systems aren't backed up that much, but I want to read this, uh, this scripture from Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because there are people that make dumb statements like, oh, you know, the, the, the death penalty is, isn't really curbing crime at all. Well, part of the reason why it's not curbing crime is because let's take a gangbanger, right? He shoots a rival drug dealer or something like that, gets arrested, uh, goes down for capital murder. You know, he set out to kill this guy, goes out and kills him, first degree murder, right? 
He's convicted. We're giving him the death penalty. And then he sits on death row for 30 years. So all the little dummies that are in his crew that are running with him, like, they, hopefully some of those guys get out of that life, but they're not going to get out of that life because they're like, oh my gosh, like my boy got, you know, he got caught up on these charges. He got convicted a month ago and now he's dead. Holy cow. Like there, there's no immediate consequence. Like if you do one of these things that we will put people to death for in this country, that you should get your appeal. And then as soon as your appeal is over and your conviction is upheld, you should be executed pretty much immediately. Because again, I want to read Ecclesiastes 8.11, and there's some other great passages from Judges, but this is a great kind of cogent one. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. It'd be worth an experiment, wouldn't it? One of these murderers or, or, or capital murderers or something like that, they're convicted, they immediately go for uh, you know, their, their retrial or their appeal, and if the appeal's up, uh, if the initial sentence is upheld, they get executed at dawn. I wonder if it'd have a big impact. My guess is that it would. All right, just a couple more left here. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel stepping down. So this is according to Politico last week. There's been some other things that have gone on, but this is, you know, decent. Ronna McDaniel is expected to step down from her role as Republican National Committee Chair this spring, according to Republican operative familiar with her thinking. So th- this is probably going to happen. I don't think it's been official yet, but it's probably going to happen. So she's, here's the thing about her. She took over the Republican National Committee as the chair when Trump was in the White House and Republicans controlled the United States House and Senate, okay? And under her leadership, the Republicans lost the House in 2018, they lost the Senate and the White House in 2020, and they performed dreadfully in 2022 midterms when there should have been a red wave. So, and now there's essentially no money for the 2024 general election because of how uh, the budgets were, were handled so poorly under her leadership. So, so let's be real here. She's only being ousted because Trump doesn't like her anymore. She literally changed her name because Romney was in her name, right? She changed her name because Donald Trump hates, you know, Mitt Romney so much, right? But the only reason she's leaving now is because Trump doesn't like her. If Trump still liked her, she'd still have this job. She would carry this job through the general election, which is concerning. But my big takeaway on this one is if you're a Republican, You should not tolerate losing and losers. This woman in her job, I'm not talking about her personally, in her job is a loser. She, she did nothing positive. People like, oh, well, you know, the Republicans took back the, back the house in 2022 and by the slimmest of margins when it should have been overwhelming and Republicans should have taken back the Senate and they didn't do that either. If you're a Republican, you should demand more of people from the RNC. And so this is a good thing that she's now out. All right, guys, we're getting to the last quicker here. And as I said from the beginning, and if you've hung on, this is officially the longest, I think, solo episode I've ever done. I'm pretty sure. So we're, we're getting up court towards a two-hour mark. This is my favorite story of 2024 so far. I'm just going to get right into it. A proposed bill in Oklahoma dealing with the growing furry problem in the greatest way possible. So this is according to our state paper, The Oklahoman. One Oklahoma lawmaker, Representative Justin Humphrey of Lane, decided to file a bill targeting furries or people in a subculture interested in anthropomorphic animal characters in Oklahoma schools. Humphrey's bill, House Bill 3084, would ban students who purport to be an imaginary animal or animal species or who engage in anthropomorphic behavior commonly referred to as furries at school from participating in class and school activities. 
the bill would require parents or guardians to pick the student up from school. And here's the best part. My favorite line of any news story so far in 2024. But if parents are unable to pick the student up, the bill says animal control services shall be contacted to remove the student. I got to tell you, I can't love this story more. Now, there's a 0% chance this actually gets passed. Like it's just one of hundreds of bills that'll just go up. That'll just kind of die a silent death. But can you imagine? Can you imagine? This kid who's got some mental disorders or they just lack attention, they dress up as an animal and they got a litter box that they go to the bathroom in, you know, whenever they go to the bathroom, they've, uh, you know, they constantly will just purr at people as opposed to talking like a human being. Imagine they call the parents, parents are stuck at work, animal control is called to the school and this person's put in a cage and driven down and put in a different cage until their parents can come and get them. My big takeaway on this one. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. More of this. I wish this would be passed. <coughs> you want to get rid of the furry problem? This is how you do it. The, the thing is, is these, purple, these people deserve to be mocked for what they're doing. The, the ones that are doing it for attention, they deserve to be mocked. The people that have actual mental disorders that think they're an animal, they need help. They need a lot of help. And what's not helping them is putting a litter box in the bathroom. What's not helping them is giving them a brush uh, to brush themselves in the middle of class. What's not helping them is allowing them not to respond to you using the English language, but only using animal sounds. Okay? That's not helping them. But the thing is, is if you, if you allow it, it'll continue to happen. But if we stop them from doing this, because I guarantee you, one kid, one kid with some moxie is going to get there in their fox costume and they're going to allow themselves and animal control is going to show up. They're going to put that thing around their neck. And then we're never going to see this happen again. So I say more of this, you know, these people have made the beds for themselves. I think that they should suffer some of the consequences of their stupid actions. That's one of the ways to, to make this go away. All right, guys, thanks for sticking around for all of this. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Add Undaunted Life for Missions, equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Again, all the show notes here today, I've got all the stuff from the He Gets Us stuff, all the stuff from the Quick Hitters. But we've also got a link at the top to our donation page. If you want to get in to win that Montana Knife Company knife, again, remember, it's tw every $25 that you donate and put the word knife in the notes. Got to put the word knife in the notes. Every 25 bucks you donate, get your uh, thing in the randomizer. And here in a few weeks, we'll draw a winner for that. But appreciate you guys' attention today. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.